Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and we have another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where you, the listeners, get the backstories to figures within the music industry, and we celebrate them while they're still here. I have on the phone with me right now producer, songwriter, music extraordinaire, Emil Gantos. Emil, up, thank you man? for coming on. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you holding up with everything due to COVID? Man, you know, we're okay. I'm out here in L.A., and it's... um. You know, some days are better than others. Everything's still pretty much shut down over here. You know, hopefully it'll open up, you know, sooner than later. But I've been, you know, I've just kind of been working from home, I would say, for the last three, three and a half months. And, you know, I'm just kind of getting used to the way things are right now. And to be honest, I'm not even sure when things are going to get back to normal. So I'm just kind of taking it one day at a time. Yeah, this is the new normal. I've been working from home as well. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, not trying to drive my wife crazy, I might add. All right, so let's go ahead and get this started. So tell the people a little bit about yourself, your background, and what made you want to become a producer. Well, I've been writing and producing for years. I'm originally from Peoria, Illinois. I started writing songs when I was 12 years old. You know, I always, as a kid, I always loved R&B music. I remember being seven or eight years old and, you know, begging my dad for a Michael Jackson Thriller album. And after I got the Thriller album, listening to that over and over and over again. And I wanted Cool in the Gang, and I wanted New Edition, and Ray Parker Jr., and the Commodores, Lionel Richie, like, all kind of, M2May, like, everything you could imagine that was R&B, I was just kind of obsessed with it as a little kid. And I knew I loved music, and I knew there was something about it that, you know, kind of touched my soul. But at that age, I didn't know that I was going to pursue a career you know, as a songwriter and music producer because it's not an easy profession to get in for anyone. But, you know, I I was writing... In fact, after I graduated high school, I met a guy named Darren Jackson. And he was uh, a local musician, and he played bass, and I think he played guitar, and he had drum machines and a few other things at his house. And so I went to his place. One day I had become friends with him through my cousin. And so I went over there, and I saw all of his equipment, and I was just kind of intrigued by it. And, like, I started playing around with his drum machine. He had a Alesis SR-16 drum machine. And he said he bought that drum machine because he read in an article or something that the gospel group commissioned was using that drum machine on one of their albums. And so... um I think Commission and Dawkins and Dawkins, I don't remember. It was someone like that back in the day. And ever since I touched that drum machine for the first time, I knew I wanted to do music and nothing else. I wasn't even a trained musician. I asked my dad to buy me a drum machine, like a little keyboard, a little Yamaha beat maker thing, SY something, SY10, SY16. I don't even remember what it's called. I just got that drum machine that had some keyboard sounds on it. And I ended up sitting in my room every single day and making beats and learning how to make music (laughs) for years. And that machine, you know, with, with that machine, I ended up, you know, finding local rappers and my friends who just rapped. I'm like, hey, I got a beat machine and I got a little microphone. And so I bought a four-track recorder and I just started making demos for all the local talent back home during that time, just in my bedroom, like really not even knowing what I'm doing. And I did that for a few years. And, you know, I knew at that point I didn't just want to make beats. I wanted to write songs. And so I started writing some songs. You know, I was never really a singer back then. Like, I can never sing like some of the artists I'm working with now. But I started writing a bunch of songs, and I found local singers to start singing them. And I ended up buying a keyboard and learning how to play keys okay. And I started taking all the money that I made from my job at the restaurant I was working at and reinvesting that into, you know, renting out studios and, you know, making demos and just putting out music locally. And that's just honestly kind of a pretty decent buzz around town during that time and I became one of the go-to producers for all the local talent and to be honest 
I wasn't even good, but I was good enough to, to kind of start working with these other artists who really didn't have a way in or any money to get to a studio or anything. So I, I just kind of became one of the main guys back home that was writing and producing songs for singers and rappers. Wow, man. The story of you building your studio and buying equipment piece by piece reminds me of the story that Jam and Lewis told a couple of years ago during the Red Bull Music Academy where they were saying how they were on tour with Prince that they would save their per diem money and buy equipment while everybody else was buying frivolous stuff like DHS tape, Betamax, and was just really starting to build the basis of what was flight time. Oh, absolutely. You know, with every dollar I ever made as a kid, I would either buy new equipment, and it wasn't ever expensive equipment. Like the first couple of years, I was just buying very inexpensive things like $100 microphone, $300 four tracks, you know, little just Casio keyboards, whatever I can save up to just kind of buy. And at one point, I had a room full of all this inexpensive equipment that I was actually making music with. And, you know, when I wasn't buying gear, I was buying CDs. I remember I had 50 or 60 CDs before I even owned a CD player because I, my cousin had a CD player. And I, at that point, I mean, I, I didn't have a CD player, but I was recording CDs to cassettes, and I found a way to make them sound better than the actual cassette that you would buy that was manufactured by the major and so I started buying CDs and recording them on the cassette. So I had all these cassettes and all these CDs, and I was just obsessed, man. I was just buying. Every Tuesday, I would go to the record store and buy every R&B album that came out, everyone. And that's like, there were so many groups I had never even heard of, but I discovered them by just buying the records and just seeing what was new on the shelf and just getting in the car and just kind of, you know, driving and, like, listening to all the sounds and, you know, the harmonies and everything. And, you know, I really just had an obsession with music ever since I was a kid. Right. This definitely brings back the days of when music was very regionalized, how certain acts, certain artists were only big in certain parts of the country. Now, right. how far is Peoria from Chicago? Peoria from Chicago is about two and a half to three hours, depending on traffic. And, you know, after living in Peoria, I ended up moving to Chicago. So I lived in Chicago for 10 years because I really couldn't get any further in Peoria. But Peoria had a record store called Co-op, Co-op Records. And Co-op would have, and they would get every album you could think of. And it's like, there would be so many releases that you wouldn't even see at Musicland or Sam Goody or any place like that. But Co-op would, they not only would have local records that you can buy, they would have, you know, regional and East Coast and West Coast. They'd have a mixture of everything, smaller labels, bigger labels, and everything. So it was kind of a go-to place. And, you know, I was able to to really discover a lot of groups just by being able to go to that record store every, every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So living in Chicago for that little bit of time, tell me about the influence of Chicago House and Chicago Stepping because I think a lot of people outside of the Midwest may not know the deep impact of those two styles to the city of Chicago. Well, Chicago Stepping and House is it's really Chicago. It represents Chicago. House music and stepping music has been around for years and as a kid I remember I liked it a lot I, you know I would listen to Ten City I would listen to Adele Towns so there's a lot of groups I can't even remember them all but I would listen to it and as much as I liked it I would find myself reverting back to just regular R&B records I would listen to you know Today and Keith Sweat and Troop and Special Generation and After Seven all these groups High Five and that's kind of like where what where I found my passion for music like those were the artists and the sound that really just moved me more than anything. I love house music, and I actually love it now more than I did as a kid. But my gear was always shifted to 
towards just R&B before rap became really big. Right. So what was your take on when New Jack Swing first hit and the first time you had that meshing of the new sound of hip-hop with the more established sound of R&B? Because remember, prior to Make It Last Forever in 1987, R&B and hip-hop was separated. And I think Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis kind of did a little bit of that with Janet's control album with Nasty. Right. And then Full Force kind of bridged that gap a little bit too as well with Lisa Lisa UTFO. Right. Full Force were like some of my childhood heroes because I loved everything Full Force did. You know, from the Roxanne Roxanne remixes to the stuff they did with UTFO to the records that they did to Temporary Love Thing. The first time I heard Temporary Love Thing, I was like in love. It's like, man, I had never ever heard a record like that. The drums were so hard. Then they had these pretty chords. And, you know, then you've got the guys. You know, you've got Lou and Paul just with these amazing harmonies and there's there's nothing like it, man. And, you know, I was into Full Force. I have every Full Force album they ever did. You know, I think Smooth was probably my favorite. Um, especially, you know, after House Party and, and my type of hype. Ain't my type of hype was one of the craziest records I've ever heard in my life. And you know, Kiss Those Lives and Friends Before Lovers. Full Force were just really ahead of their time. And I think as dope as they were, they never really got the shine that I think that they deserved. Like they definitely had a lot of success, but a lot of people don't remember. A lot of people in the pop world don't even know who Full Force is or who Full Force were. And I feel like if they had just a little more push from Columbia Records during that time, they could have been even bigger, man. Because those guys have something special. Yeah, but it definitely made up for it once they got All I Have to Give for Bashy Boys and right. it did I Just Want to Be With You off of Instinct's U.S. self-titled debut album. Right. And it did a cut for Britney Spears that was unreleased called, I think, Love to Hurt Away. And it right. was almost like All Cried Out Part 2. It was. It was. And, you know, they did re- something on Rihanna's first album. And I'm pretty good friends with Baby Jerry from Full Force, so we talk all the time. And, you know, we've become really good friends over the years. And there's so many stories. All I Have to Give, to me, that was awesome. To me, that's like a Full Force classic. It, it takes me back to Friends Before Lovers, you know, and those are like R&B records with that pop feel. And, you know, Jerry told me that when they did All I Have to Give for Full Force, that was the first time that any production team had ever had all five members do lead. And it was like prior to them, there was only one or two guys from Backstreet even singing the songs. But they wanted to just kind of showcase everybody on the record. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Full, Full Force, man, like Full Force was amazing. And to me, they were before New Jack Swing, they were hip-hop. Like they were hip-hop with those pretty chords, very similar to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, with, you know, to their sound, uh, in my opinion. But I think the first New Jack, New Jack Swing, that record that I ever fell in love with was God Groove Me. I think for me, it was either that one or My Fantasy. It was one of them. And those records, when I heard those, I was like, man, there was nothing I had ever heard in my life. Those records were just unbelievable. Yeah, and to think about Teddy produced that album along with his other early productions right in his apartment at the St. Nicholas Project. Yeah, he told me the story, man. He told me he was sitting on his floor recording a bunch of those records. And uh, there's just so many stories, man. He told me a while back that that was Albie Sher who was on You Can Call Me Crazy. And nobody ever even knew that. They never told anyone that that was Albie. Everybody thought it was Timmy Gatlin, but it was Albie. And some of those stories are just amazing, man. Teddy's actually yeah. a really good friend over the years. We've done some stuff together. But yeah, that guy album, I mean, Teddy had Guy. He had Today. He Sweat. 
He was producing everything, man. Like, Rectin Effect, Heavy D, you know, I'll be sure, you know, if, I think he did If I'm Not Your Lover, right? Yeah, yeah, he did If, if I'm Not Your Lover for I'll Be Off yeah. in Effect Mode. And I think, originally, You Can Call Me Crazy was supposed to go to I'll Be Sure right. for In Effect Mode, but I think they already turned it into Warner Brothers, right. and they decided to keep that for uh, Guy's album. Right. And also, he did work with Boy George off the Hi-Hat album, he which did. I thought was a dope record. Don't take right. my mind on the trip. You found another guy, which right. I think, correct me if I'm not, I think I heard that was originally supposed to be for Bobby, but he passed on it. You know, I read that too, man. Like, uh, I never actually talked to Teddy about that one, but I think I read something like that years ago. I mean, all those early Teddy Riley productions, I mean, that era in music is just so special to me because you didn't only have Teddy with New Jack. You had L.A. and Face with, with their sound and everything they were doing from the Whispers, Rocksteady, to, you know, the Bobby Brown stuff, to the boys. I mean, Down My Heart and those records were just unbelievable. And then you right. had Jammin', Jammin' Lewis with that sound of Minneapolis with New Edition and, you know, Alexander O'Neill. Then you had, you know, you had other cats like Troy Taylor and those cats who were coming up who weren't necessarily getting the singles, but they had great album cuts on a bunch of those records, man. So it was just, and Dallas Austin, there's another one. Like, so you had Dallas Austin with the sound of Atlanta, and none of those records really sounded like each other. You know, they were all dope in their own way, and everybody was doing this fusion of hip-hop and R&B, but I feel like Dallas and Teddy were doing, you know, the same genre, but their sound was totally different. And Jam and Lewis and Babyface in L.A., I mean, they were on the same records, but their sonics and their sounds and their songs were different. So it was just, it was a really great time for me as a kid in music because... There's so many things to choose from, unlike today, to where, you know, today everything's more saturated than it's ever been. You know, everything sounds the same because everybody's got the same sound packs. Everybody's got the same plugins. And, you know, I'm not going to say everybody. I'm gonna, I'll say about 95, 96% of the artists out there all sound very similar because there's there's no real identity, man, the way that there used to be. You know, when you would hear Aaron Hall, you would be like, wow, he's got a you know, uh, a unique tone. Nobody else sounds like Aaron. You know, maybe Charlie Wilson, these cats. But today when you listen to records, you know, since everybody has the same plugins and all the tune on their vocals, you really don't know who you're listening to the way that you used to, you know, as we were growing up. Right, definitely. Yeah, and you mentioned Dallas Austin. We got to give big mentions to George Cinderella Irby from Climax who right. put Dallas Austin on. Yep. He did Hey Mr. DJ for her with Dougie Fresh. But right. he really got his first big exposure working on Truth's Attitude album with I'll Always Love You and My Music. Now, can you tell me about Troops Jump from their self-titled debut album, which was produced by Chucky Booker along with Mark Gordon and the late Gerald LeVert, and then with the Attitude album, which Chucky did production on, that Carmen did production on, and also looking on fat people. Trent Reznor, yes, that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails was the engineer on the Attitude album. I remember, I remember Steve told me that from Troop. I think the self-debuted album from Troop is a classic. I think Still in Love and Young Girl are still two of my favorite Troop records. You know, Steve told me he wrote those records and I think he was 15 or 16 years old. So for me, when I think of the first Troop album, I know a lot of people think of Mama Sita in those records, and I like those records. Don't get me wrong, I did like them, but for me, Still in Love and Young Girl, those records, whew, those records are incredible. But when Attitude came out, and there was nothing like Attitude, from That's My Attitude to My Love and Spread My Wings, I'm Not Soup, I think I'm Not Soup was the first single off that album, if I'm correct. 
And but every song on that album, all I do is think of you, another lover, I will always love you. That album, I remember as a kid, I would just play that record over and over and over again. Like there was nobody like Troop to me. Once I actually got in the music business, and I became friends with Troop. It was like that was the only time in my career that I was actually ever starstruck because I was with their manager when I was in LA visiting. I think in 2000 or 2001, somewhere around there. And he's like, Hey, Troop is rehearsing because they're gonna start doing shows again. You wanna go meet them and, and talk about? Doing doing records with them and man, that's the only time in my life that I had ever been starstruck because I saw those guys at a rehearsal studio and they were doing the routine right in front of me for all I do is think of you and I'm like man these guys like they have no idea how much they influenced me as a producer and writer because they were just my favorite yeah Troop holds a special place for me because Alan gave me my very first interview and also had a chance yeah. to interview John John yeah John John Steve and Chucky all on separate occasions and Chucky wow. told me this little backstory about spreading my wings he told me that turned away was originally supposed to go for truth. Wow. So what ended up happening was he played it for Sylvia Rome, and Sylvia told him, "Nope, this is going on your album." But he was trying to tell her this is truth's record. She was like, "No," and wouldn't budge. So once he told the guys that, they were like, "Man, write a song similar," and that's how we get "Spread My Wings." Yeah, it was a similar story because I remember Steve heard "Spread My Wings." He's like, "Chuck, you gotta give me that record. That's gotta be a troop record." And he begged Chucky for that record. Is what he told me. And Chucky finally gave it to him. But that troop album was amazing, man. That troop album for me was a game changer because as a kid, I think I was 15, 16 years old when that album came out. And even though I still wasn't like writing and producing for a profession, I knew that there was something with that Troop album that made me want to just listen and pursue music even more. I was reading all the liner notes before I ever even started writing and producing, so I I just always knew these names. You know, I would see Stephen Russell's, I would see Chucky Booker, Gerald LaVert, Mark Gordon, all these names, and Joyce Irby, and, and I would try to find, as I kind of, you know, pursued the music business, I would start finding ways of trying to find these names. And uh, I remember I ended up moving to Chicago in the early 2000s. I think it was 2000 or 2001. And um, I just, again, I was still buying CDs every week. And uh, emails were getting pretty popular. And I started just emailing. Like, I would find emails on CD cases and managers' emails and stuff like that. And I just started emailing people. Like, And the, I was actually doing music at this time. I was working with a group called Public Announcement in Chicago and Do or Die and a few other groups, Chicago groups. I was actually really starting to kind of get my feet wet in the music business. And I would just start emailing people, man. I would cold call them and email them. And I had a few demos here and there, not many, but I just started kind of emailing them and pretending I knew them. Like, I would be like, hey, man, long time, no talk. I'm going to be in New York next week. And I would make up people that I work with. Like, I would say, just work with this person and that person, and uh, I would love to get with you and do some records. And, um, man, would you believe that kind of got me heard and it kind of got me flown around the country? And, hey, man, you know the old saying, fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it, man. And, like, I couldn't believe all these people that I was finding just by cold calling them and just sending emails out, you know. It's like, and the thing is, at that time, being that it was a new way of communication, I think people are like, well, I, w I wonder who this is. You know, you kind of get excited to get emails because it's a new thing. And you're kind of like listening and, you know, it's kind of something new and exciting. You're just networking with people you wouldn't have met any other way. And this is actually before MySpace. I think there was another thing I was a part of. It was called Tonos. I think. I think it was a little music forum or like a place to upload music and kind of network with people before MySpace. And I became friends with several people on that thing as well. 
than I'm still friends with to today, man. But yeah, I just I really faked it until I made it, man. And I, yeah. was, just, I was blown away with how much I did in a short period of time. And tell me about the impact you think I'll be and Cal West made on you as a songwriter and producer. Because I think Cal West doesn't get mentioned enough. Huge, huge, huge impact. I mean, Jodeci. I mean, the Forever My Lady album. I mean, that says it all. You know, those records were just masterpieces to me. And there was nothing like Jodeci. There was nothing like Al B at that time. And nobody, to me, wrote and arranged vocals the way Al B did. I mean, his first album is my favorite one. Like, Ooh, This Love Is So and Nationally Mind. Those records, whew, those records are just everything. Night and Day. You know, Killing Me Softly remake, that album was so special, man. And I don't think he got the recognition that he deserved as a songwriter. Let me just kind of go back. I've never met Albie. Even though we follow each other on social media, I've actually never even met him. He's one of the few people I've never even built a relationship with for some reason. I would have thought that he would have been a huge writer and writing and producing for everyone, especially after those records he did for Tevin Campbell, especially after La Day and Dean Phil and some of these other records he did. Like, I would have thought that he would have been bigger than what he was. Right, and... Speaking of Jodeci, they're from my neck of the woods, North Carolina, and I think by me growing up there, it's a great spot in the country because it's in the middle of everything. You got to pass through North Carolina if you're going to New York or Florida. So we got a little bit of everything musically because where I grew up was four hours from D.C., so we heard Go-Go. We heard pretty much everything that was coming out of Atlanta, then Florida, Miami with what Luke is doing, and then the early birth what was going on in the Tidewater area of Virginia when Teddy set up shop with Future Studios and the early beginnings of Chad and Pharrell. Right, man. It was just a great time in music. And, you know, I always wish I could have been a producer during that time because I feel like that would have been the era that I would have loved to produce in. Like, and, I'm not, and I love the Motown era. I love the 70s era. I love music of every era and every genre. But there was something about that early 90s for me. You know, when I think of Jeff Red, you called and told me, those kind of records, Father MC records, you know, that everything's going to be all right. That's the 90s to me, man. Like, that's high school. That's that sound that I just wish we still had a little more of today. Yeah, because I was young at the time. So, like, around 93, I was about eight when Intro's album dropped and a lot of those classics. Intro album was incredible. To me, their New Life album was just as strong as the debut. No skips, Kenny Green, vocally, songwriting-wise, a true talent, R.I.P., and we should have gotten a solo album from him because he was no joke. We should have, but, you know, like, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of these cats did have solo records, and they have a bunch of records that we'll never hear, and that were just unreleased. And, you know, Kenny probably, you know, R.I.P. to him, man, he probably has dozens and dozens of records that the world will never even hear because he may have been the only one who had a copy of them at that time, you know, and nobody else may even know how to find them. But it's like, you know, you never know. There's always, you know, we always wish we had more from, from certain groups or from certain singers. Like, I wish Buddy Banks from the Root Boys would have had a solo album because Buddy Banks was one of the greatest voices of all time to me. And I wish Joe Little would have had more success as a solo artist. And I wish Brian Abrams would have had an incredible solo album who was one of the lead singers of Color Me Bad. There's so many great voices, man. And it's just, you know, there's no rhyme or reason for it. You know, sometimes it's internal issues with the group or issues with the label and, or, or the artist just doesn't have the right producer believing in them or, or doesn't have the money to pay the producer to give him the project or the product he needs. So, man, there's always reasons for everything. But I'm just thankful that we've at least 
had the chance to be blessed with some of those amazing records that we all grew up on. Right. Um, you shared with me before we did this interview a little backstory on a song that originally was supposed to go to the artist. I want to know if you could be able to share that with us. The Right Kind of Love? Yeah, the Jeremy Jordan record. Yeah, Jeremy Jordan. Yeah, I'm actually friends with Rodney Neville, the guy who wrote Right Kind of Love for Jeremy Jordan. And he said his original pitch on that record was for Coloring Bad. That's who he wanted to get the record to. And I think the other song, I've got another friend who wrote the song Tell Me for Drew Hill, and he said that they were trying to get that record to Color Me Bad, I think, but they ended up going to Drew Hill. It was something like that. Are you speaking of Stanley Brown? No, not Stanley Brown. Uh, Alex Cantrell. Okay. I think Tell Me when it went to Drew Hill, because they were a new group, and I think that he was trying to get that record to, um, I, I believe he said Color Me Bad, if I remember, man. I don't remember, but I think that's who they wanted the record for. They said it ended up doing amazing with Drew Hill. Right, man. Yeah, it became a big hit for Drew Hill, really launched them and had them come after what Jodeci was doing and to establish their own footing and I can remember watching TV One's Life After and they had BBD and Michael Bivens had said that Poison was originally supposed to go to I'll Be Sure that I'll be sure passed on because if you listen to Poison and Misunderstanding there are similarities there are Poison is just a better record Misunderstanding yeah. was a great record don't get me wrong Eddie F and those guys did their thing on that record but Poison was just a bigger record yeah Eddie F and the Untouchable Camp underrated as producers and another production songwriting duo that's underrated Corey Rooney and Prince Marky D absolutely man real love <laughs> I mean, that record kind of says it all. And they had one for Christopher Williams that I used to love um, on the Changes album. Um, can't think of the name of it. Can we? It's the second or third record on this album. But those guys had a lot of big records, man. I like the stuff they did with Billy Lawrence. Yeah, my favorite stuff that they did was with a group they had called Menagerie. There were, I think, four or five Puerto Rican cats. They had to cut Now I Realize, and when I interviewed Kurat Ski, he was telling me that he had to tell people that, yo, you know, Marky did this, and I kind of think him breaking that stigma of being the guy from the Fat Boys really was kind of, I think, the big thing is him wanting to get in production and songwriting so that people just don't look at him as, oh, you're that guy from Crush Groove, are you ready for Freddy, that is orderly, and be taken through. Right. So Marky D, I mean, his first album was awesome, man. Like, his records were crazy, and that was an incredible fusion of R&B and, uh, and hip-hop as well, man, with the pop appeal to it. Tripping Out and a bunch of those songs, those were great records. Right. Another underrated artist from the New Jack era, he was kind of on maybe the third tier, but he had some bangers. Dino. Yeah, Dino definitely did. There's yeah, a, a lot of great talent, man, during that time. I got a call, I think, that Dino's daughter is singing. I think he lives in Hawaii. I think he's a principal or something in Hawaii. Principal in Hawaii. I think that's Glenn Medeiros. Glenn Medeiros, that's who it is. Yep, Glenn Medeiros who did She Ain't Worth It with Bobby right. Brown. Yep, he had Rob Trustman, I think, on some backgrounds on, one of, on, his, on that album, and I think Ray Parker Jr. and a bunch of people worked on that album. That album, I would have assumed that he would have had a bigger career after how big that record was, but it just kind of died down, man. Right, and then we were mentioning this guy earlier who I feel everybody knows him more for his behind-the-scenes work as a producer, and of course, he, along with his brother, got a stake in Beast by Dre, but Bobby Ross... Yep, very cool guy, good friend of mine, incredible talent, man. Yeah, I thought he was dope as an artist, you know, he had been putting in work since he was a kid, opening up right. for new kids on the Magic Summer Tour, signed right. to RCA, and then in 93, he got signed by Jan and Lewis to Perspective, where he right. put out the My Destiny album with My Love, La La Love, and all his other big records, so, right. so far. You know, he played and produced all those songs, too, man. Yeah, I always knew Bobby Ross was self-contained. I, I, I think at 10 
or 12 years old, he was playing and producing, pretty much playing everything on those albums and producing it with his dad and his brother, I think. They were all, all just doing it together. Wow. Yeah, definitely all in the family. So tell me about your reaction when you had your first big placement on a record. Well, 3LW was the first major label artist that I ever actually worked with. When I was working with Public Announcement, I think they were independent at the time. I'm pretty sure that they were. But 3LW was the first major label artist I ever worked with. And I, I remember flying out to L.A. to work with them, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm working with these girls. And I was so excited, man. You know, we cut a couple records. Unfortunately, that album never even came out. That's when they did the deal on So So Dev. And I think the Cheetah Girls blew up so big. And, you know, 3LW, two of them were in the Cheetah Girls, that they just put their focus on the Cheetah Girls because it was so huge. And they were able to kind to capitalize off that but I would say they were the first major label act I worked with and I was super excited even though the song never came out but then I worked with Jojo I think it's 2004, 2005, and that was my first time in New York. I was like, that's the first time I ever felt like I had actually made it in the music business. You know, I was still working in a restaurant, and here I am in New York with JoJo, and while we're working, little Romeo comes in, who's Master Peace son, and we exchange info, we start doing some records, and you know, that kind of, I, I was working with Imagine at the time as well, if you remember those guys who were on Jive and Universal. I had become really good friends with Imagine, so I remember I was in, my production team at the time was called Nassami, so when we were in New York, I think we flew in a, on Thursday night or Friday morning, something like that. And we ended up doing an Imagine session all night long. And then we did JoJo the next day all day long. She had to be done by 8 o'clock, 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening because she was still a minor. So we would record JoJo during the afternoon, and then we would go record Imagine all night long at their place. They lived about 15 or 20 minutes away from Sony Studios where we were doing JoJo at. And, man, I remember just being on the highest rush of my life, man. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm working with Imagine and JoJo. And I just met Little Romeo. It's like, I felt like my career was moving forward. And I felt like, you know, soon I'm going to have a hit. And soon I'm going to be able to do music full time. And soon I'm not going to have to wait tables anymore. But that really wasn't what happened. Like, I was getting cuts and, you know, I was getting placements. But my songs weren't the singles at the time. And I was making money from those records. But I wasn't making enough money to quit my job and to just pursue music full time. And so, you know, I just kept grinding it out during that time, you know, I, I was introduced to Wanye from Boyz II Men, and they were working on an album for the Japanese market, and so he told me he loved my music, and he wanted me to send him some stuff, and so I remember I sent him like 20 tracks or songs, I loaded them up, and you know, he just said, send, 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 and uh, he said he just loved listening to new music, and we ended up placing three songs on that Boyz II Men on the Remedy album, which was released in Japan, you know, we actually had one of the songs that was just licensed in the movie, the movie was Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron, that just came out, can't remember the name, Longshot, I think is the name of it, uh, so we just had one of those records that actually synced in that movie, which was pretty cool, but after Boys to Men, I wanted to go to Atlanta, because Lloyd was out, and Bobby Valentino, and all these other artists were out, and I'm like, I know if I could find these artists, I know I could definitely do some records with them, because those were the kind of songs I was writing and producing, it was right up my alley, and so I went to Atlanta, I had a friend named Chucky Charles, who invited me and my partner at the time, and he told us we could just stay at his house, and he would just show us around the city, and so, you know, he was in the mix, he was working with Dallas Austin for a while, and he was one of Dallas, I think he was one of the in-house producers for Dallas, I think it was, no, it wasn't, it was either Dallas or 
or Tricky Stewart. Maybe it was Tricky Stewart, but it was one of them. And Chucky and I became really good friends. You know, Chucky was from the Midwest, from the Rockford area, and I was living in Chicago. And he's like, hey, man, anytime you guys want to come out, you guys can stay here. I'll take you around. I'm a fan of what you guys are doing, and if I can help you, I will. You know, props to, to Chucky, man. Not, I can't think of many people who would do that for a complete stranger, and it's like that's something I'll never forget because we really were broke at the time. We didn't have any money. But I remember Chucky took it to, like, Darb Studios and to Sonic Partner Studios and all these other studios that I had always read about and dreamed about going to. It's like, now I'm in these rooms, and I was just blown away. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm actually here. And then he's like, hey, I want to go to my friend Teddy Bishop's house. I want you to meet Teddy. And so while we were at Teddy's, house, Bobby Valentino's manager was there, and I didn't even know it was his manager. His name was Courtney Stewart. And uh, and I told him, you know, I introduced myself, and, you know, I told him I really want to work with Bobby Valentino, and he said, I manage him. And I'm like, do you really? I thought this other guy named Poon that I had been talking to. He goes, no, no, I'm the actual manager for him. He goes, Poon's part of the team, but I'm the manager. And I'm like, he's like, play me some records. And I played him some records, man, and I made him a CD, and we were in Atlanta like one week later working with Bobby. Wow, that's crazy. That was crazy. Like, they flew us out one week later, and we were in the studio, and the, the record that we did was called Checking For Me. And, you know, Courtney asked me if there was any writers that I liked working with, and there was a group that I was working with that was based out of L.A. called I-15. I told him, I really like working with these guys, and, you know, we were writing really great songs together. And uh, he goes, okay, dope. He goes, have them come with you. So they flew, and they met us. They flew out to Atlanta and met us out there. And, you know, we were in the studio with Bobby Valentino. And while we were there, I met Jagged Edge came by. Greg Charlie, who was in a group called Sierra. I started meeting all kinds of people during that trip to Atlanta. I met Jazzy Faye and his group Nephew, who I ended up working with, and a bunch of other people. But that kind of became a turning point because we were really building our name as, like, real songwriters and real producers, like a one-stop shop. We just were getting in the mix with a lot of people. Still no hits, man. Like, no hits at all. But just great songs. And we came close on so many times on having singles with like Bobby and all these other artists but by the time it was our turn to possibly get a single the artist had either been dropped or the label was just not spending any more money on the artist I remember in 2008 working with four or five different artists signed to MySpace Records I remember we did maybe 50 or 60 songs that year for all these artists and none of them came out. All the artists got dropped, and we didn't get paid for anything. So it was rough, man, Like, but it kept us strong, and it kept us going. It definitely kept me going. You know, I definitely wanted to quit a handful of times, but I never ended up quitting because I knew music is really what I wanted to do and really what I love. I just kept pursuing it and pursuing it. And, you know, just fast forward 2009, I was living in Chicago, completely broke, waiting tables, just depressed, man, just depressed. I'm like, man, I'm, I spent my whole life chasing this music game, and I'm, I'm just a failure. Like, all my other friends that I went to school with, like, all have good jobs, college educations and everything, and I didn't have anything like that. I dropped out of college. My professor, I remember going to Columbia College, and I was in a room with 200 people or something like that, and it was a music class, and the professor asked everyone in the room, who in the room thinks that they've written a hit song? I, of course, I raised my hand because I was super confident confident at that time and he said everybody please put your hand down he goes this is a serious question if you really think you have a hit song that you've written I challenge you to bring it to the classroom next week and play it in front of the class and you know just fast forward I brought the song in and my song won and the song that came in second place was another song that I did that I didn't even submit and I did it for some girl in the school that wasn't even in the classroom still to this day I don't know how that record or that song even got played that day because I don't know who in that room would have even had a copy of it to turn in. But it was those two songs. The top two songs are my songs. And so after the class was over, the professor told me, 
that the best advice he could give me is to drop out of school and to go pursue music and just be hands-on, get in as many studios as I can, network with as many people as I can, because a degree in music production won't ever amount to much for me. Because he was a field musician and uh, a field producer. That's why he was teaching, because he had the knowledge, but he never really made it. And so I kind of took that advice, just to, you know, if I'm being honest. And I'm going to fast forward back to 2009, after pursuing music for seven or eight years and never really having the success I wanted, I got a call from this girl who's living in Spain, and she found me from, again, it was an email from a guy who's, in fact, she emailed my old manager trying to find me because she loved the songs I did for Boys to Men on the Remedy album in Japan, which, to be honest, weren't even my favorite records I had done. I didn't think they were the best representation. But there was one song I did for him called The Last Time that everybody just seemed to love. Like, they just loved that instrumental and the melodies on that record. She said she wanted to work with me. And I'm like, okay, cool. And it's like, I was dead broke. I'm like, any kind of money I can make, I would just take it. She offered me $2,000 a song it was nothing because we were getting paid $15,000 a song when we were selling records to the labels but all that had kind of died down you know I started thinking to myself I'm like you know, if she's got money to spend $2,000 maybe she could buy three or four of these other songs I have laying around and she told me she was broke and she had no money but she said her grandmother was wanting to help her out I kept sending her songs and that one song turned into five songs I'm like okay now I'm making I made ten and I'm like you know I, I wonder where this thing could go so she told me she wanted to fly to Chicago and record with me and so she flew into Chicago and while she was there she told me she wanted a rapper on one of the songs that we were doing. And I'm like, okay, cool. And I was really trying to blow her off because I'm like, I don't really know any rappers who would even get on these songs. And there's no real local talent where I was at at that time. So I kind of tried to blow her off. And I told her, you know, I know rappers, but they charge a lot of money. She's like, how much? I'm like, $10,000 for a verse. And dude, the next day she came into the studio with an envelope with $10,000. And she gave it to me. She goes, okay, give me a rapper. I'm like, where's this girl getting this money from? Just to make a long story short, that gig ended up changing my life because she decided that she wanted to move to California and she wanted me to come with her and she wanted me to help consult and oversee her entire project from shooting music videos to making an album to getting her vocal lessons, choreographers and everything. You know, she asked me how much I would charge her to move to L.A. and just be with her for three months and kind of help oversee everything. And we were on instant message at the time on MSN or AIM, one of those. I was just joking, like, maybe I'll do it for, like, $10,000, because maybe that way I'm making, like, $3,000 a month. And I was like, to me, that was a lot of money at that time, because I really didn't have much. So then I just, as a joke, I typed in $100,000, and she agreed to it. So she gave me $100,000 to move to L.A. with her for three months. Amen. Name and claim it. <laughs> she gave me $100,000. So I moved to L.A. with her, and then she gave me another half a million dollars to help consult and put her entire project together and hire producers and everything. So I went from being completely broke, depressed, living in a Chicago apartment that was horrible in a bad neighborhood to moving out to L.A. within probably 60 days, fully moving out to L.A. because she had to go back home and get her things packed up and ready to move and she needed a little time to get situated before she flew out to L.A. So me being completely out of debt, having enough money in the bank to live comfortably with for a few years, and kind of getting a second shot at pursuing music the way I really wanted to. And that moment changed my life, man. Like, I moved out here, moved to L.A. I got into a building with a lot of other producers and 
songwriters, and I was friends with him. You know, one of the guys is Greg Pagani. He's written and produced for... I mean, he's done... He worked with Babyface for years. He's worked with Leanne Rhymes, Charlie Wilson, all kinds of people. And then Nasri was in there, who was the lead singer of the band Magic. And Nasri was writing a bunch of records for, like, New Kids on the Block. He wrote Summertime, and he did pretty much their entire comeback album. And he wrote for Justin Bieber. He did As Long As You Love Me. A building full of talented writers and producers. It was the first time in my life that I had been surrounded with these kind of people every single day because prior to that I was just waiting tables man and doing music once or twice a week at the studio with my old partner who lived two hours away from me so I would drive from Chicago to Bloomington Illinois every week through snowstorms rainstorms and everything and I mean I spent I would say I spent the first 10 years of my career driving and I mean driving 300 400 miles a week just to be able to record every week of those 10 years man and just I never gave up I just kept doing it and when I finally moved out to LA it was like a breath of fresh air with no rain no snow just sunshine good vibes I'm in a building doing music with everyone my sound was completely dated at that time just to be honest I had to reinvent myself and had to learn how to not just do R&B music anymore because I came from an era to where R&B records were loops you know, during the mid-2000s, it wasn't like anything super musical or anything. They were just mainly loops. They were hip-hop beats, you know, and just drum machines and things like that, so samples. So that was easy. But when I moved out here, David Guetta and Lady Gaga were like the biggest thing on the radio, and Black Eyed Peas, and it was like a futuristic sound that I didn't even know how to make. So I had to step back and like learn, learn all the new programs, learn the new plugins, meet the new singers that are hot, the new writers that are hot, and just kind of really humble myself and really try to reinvent myself. And, you know, being in that building... You know, me and Nasri started working a lot. We ended up catching a cut for, we worked with Prince Royce, we worked with JLS. We, you know, the JLS record we did went number one. We, we did Pipple and Chris Brown. We did a lot of stuff, man. And, you know, I started working a lot with Charlie Wilson and a bunch of other people as well. You know, my sound really developed a lot, and I kind of found a brand-new kind of confidence in myself as a writer and producer. And I think it was because I was really able to write with great writers and produce around great producers to where when I was in Illinois living in Chicago I was just doing it by myself and with my partner and we didn't learn from anyone we, the only way we would learn is by listening to CDs and songs and just trying to figure out what they did but we really didn't know what they were doing until we came out to LA and we were in the mix with everyone but it's definitely a crazy story man man your story I was like man you're beyond blessed going from here to there, having everything that you need, it just, man, that was just an amazing testimony. Now, you mentioned earlier that you thought Poon was Bobby Valentino's manager, correct? Correct, because I had been introduced to Poon through somebody. I don't remember who it was, man. I was like, he found the studio in Bloomington, Illinois, that I was working out of with my old partner. And there was somebody in that town, some singer or some rapper that I guess knew Poon, and they needed to cut a demo. And that's how I met Poon, because he called the studio. He said he's Bobby Valentino's manager, and they were looking for a studio to record out of. And I'm like, dang, Bobby's going to come here and record? And I was like, that's big. <laughs> and it's like, I only met Poon a couple times. You know, we used to talk, but I haven't talked to Poon in maybe 13 years. It's been a long time, man. Right. The reason why I ask is because I'm thinking it's probably Poon Daddy, who used to work in radio in Atlanta on Hot 97.9 with um, Ludacris. Same guy. Same guy. Crazy. And then I also thought, imagine 
should have been bigger because I know Jamal had left right after Flavor and Shorty You Keep Playing, and then Donald Faison's brother was in that group. Yeah, Alameda. Alameda is an incredible, incredible, incredible singer. Still a friend of mine. Uh, and Status, whose real name is John Fitch, he's, um, he was awesome too, man. Like, those guys became really good friends. We wrote a lot of great songs together, man. And we just, we really had this connection, this chemistry. And those guys, they were a band. They were, like, really great musicians. And we just, we vibe, man. We just instantly, the first time we worked together, it's like, it was just instant magic. There was never, it was like that with I-15 with Jazz and Castro. Like, there was just instant magic. And it was just something that we had never experienced, really, with anyone else. But I, I really wish that both of those groups would have went on to be a lot more successful than what they were. Right. And uh, have you heard JoJo's new record, The Good to Know album? I have. It's great, man. JoJo's amazing. Yeah, I thought JoJo, very, very talented. Get Out, of course, was a huge hit for her. Right. But I think this new album just taking her to a whole new stratosphere. Because she did a video where she was backstage with Mariah, Taylor Renz, and the rest of her background singers. And I'm like, JoJo has always been talented. And I think now a lot of people are discovering how talented she truly is vocally. JoJo is one of the greatest singers I've ever even recorded. I recorded her when she was 14 or 15 years old. We sent her some songs that she had memorized, all three of them, by the time she came to the studio. And she not only had memorized them, but she had added a few additional harmony parts to them. When she came into the studio, she said, hey, I'm ready to go. She goes, I added some a few additional harmonies. Is it cool if I lay them down and see what you guys think? I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And at that time, it's like, how is she, who is this 14-year-old girl? I'm like, how does she know harmonies and stuff? And man, this girl was just unlike she wasn't human man she was amazing i remember she told the engineer i'll never forget it she said hey can you give me 24 tracks because i'm going to lay down their three-part harmony and i want to stack each one four times so that's going to be 12 tracks then i got another three harmonies i want to add around it and i'm going to need 12 tracks so i can stack each part four times and man she just murdered it man it was unbelievable it's like Wow. Like, and we were used to working with people who couldn't really sing and manually, like, pitching their vocals. And this was before auto-tune, just by using pitch shifting plugins and stuff like that, like, and even sampling some of the lines to try to fix the pitch. But, um... She was phenomenal, man. She was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier JLS. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with UK Music Ads, JLS stands for Jack the Last Swing. They came together on the UK X Factor, which gave us, like, the Leona Lewis little mix. And that phenomenon you might have heard of as One Direction. So tell me about your experience working with JLS. JLS was awesome, man. I was a fan of JLS at the time. You know, my friend, there's a song that I wrote with an artist named Frankie J. It's called Take a Chance on Me. I actually wrote it with Frankie and my friend Nazri and another friend of mine, Nick Turpin, who's in the building. Like like I said, everybody in the building was just working together. And Frankie came in and he's, you know, he started sitting, he sat at the piano. He just came up with that riff. And then all of a sudden, we're just all vibing melodies and stuff. And Take a Chance on Me is born. So we have this record. And I remember we all were like super excited for it. And Frankie's like, this is my single, man. This is going to be a big one for me. He was really, really excited about it. And so JLS, when Nasri had a meeting with a guy named Nick Raphael, who I think was part of the JLS team or one of the A&Rs. And so, you know, he was looking for records for JLS and Nasri was playing one record after another. But he wasn't biting on any of the records for the group. And he's like, let me just play this other song we just did with Frankie J. And Nick heard the record and he's like, that's it. That's the single. That's what I want JLS to do. This could be this is their next single. And he goes, well, I can't really give it up because it's going to be a single for Frankie. He goes, no, we need that record. So we ended up doing the deal with JLS. The true story behind that song is after I cut JLS on that record, I got all their vocals and everything put together. And they had just left the studio. I had just did the final comp. My computer crashed. 
And at that point, I was freaking out because I couldn't get that session to open up anymore. And then I tried to open it up. I probably spent about an hour trying to get it to open up in safe modes and everything you can imagine. And bits and pieces of it would show up, and none of the plugins would even appear. Like, I don't know what happened, but that computer just completely took the burn on me, man. And I was a nervous wreck because I had just worked with one of the biggest groups in the U.K., and now I may have lost all of their vocals. So what I did is I was able to get into the audio bin. I was using a program called Sonar at the time on my PC, and I was able to find all the individual music and vocal takes. And when I mean vocal takes, there may have been like, there was probably seven or 800 vocal takes between them all because it was every take and every comp. So and some of them were just one or two words. So I had to take all those files, and well, first of all, I went and bought a new computer that night. I went and bought a new computer, and I stayed up all night long setting it up and reinstalling everything. So while I'm reinstalling this computer, I was able to copy all these audio files to my hard drive, to an external hard drive, and then I loaded everything up into the new computer, and I still had the instrumental. I think I did the instrumental for that song in Logic, because I was using Logic at the time. So I was able to get some of the original tracks, like the raw tracks from my Logic, and reload those into Sonar, which I was using for recording and mixing at the time. And I took all the audio files, and I manually lined each one up according to, like, I would say, for example, okay, this is the second line of the second verse, and I would nudge them to the grid until I got the entire song put together. And I must have spent 10 to 12 hours just lining up all the clips because there were so many and getting them to sit right. And then I had to recomp and re-edit and re-nudge and re-melodyne, everything I did all over again. But that song went number one for us, man. And that song, that song almost killed me. <laughs> man, but why is it that you think it is tough for urban UK acts to break through in America? The only one that we had break through in the U.S. after the heyday of Brit Soul with Loose Ends, Sade, 52nd Street, Five Star, was Craig David born to do it. And why do you think acts like JLS and Damage didn't really take off here in America? Man, I really don't know. That's just the honest to God truth. You know, there's so many great artists, not just in the UK, and there's artists, amazing artists in Australia and Korea and Japan. You just don't know, man. Craig, Craig, that was like a phenomenon. That was like UK two-step in Garage with R&B, Soul, and Pop all mixed in. But that one worked. But, you know, in America, Craig David's first album worked. But everything else he put out didn't really translate here. And, you know, JLS did try to break here, but it didn't end up happening. And, you know, you know, you have people like Cher Lloyd, who was a big pop star. And, you know, she had a couple crossover singles that did really well here, but you really don't know, man. You you really can't call these things. You know, you, you know what you like and you know what you love, and sometimes it just all boils down to how much their marketing budget is, and do they want to expand to America, because, you know, to break something in America is going to cost a lot more money, especially with a group like JLS, you know, like the UK, it definitely costs money in the UK to, to break them, but if you're going to take JLS and try to break them in America, you're looking at spending another $3 million, so it just depends on what the budgets are for some of these groups. So. Yeah, because I know they were trying to really push, take that over here in America when they were right. huge. Back for Good only became their U.S. hit, but Robbie Williams had moderate success here. And I was surprised at how much success Five had here in America. And they really would have broken here in the U.S. had they would have taken Bye Bye Bye. It passed right. on, and that's how NSYNC got it. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right, man. You really don't know, man. There's no formula for this stuff. You know what you like and you know what you think is dope. And I think just being able to discover music like we can today on Spotify and on YouTube is really good enough because there's people loving music from all around the world. And, you know, we can't just rely on radio to break all the records that we like anymore. We're just in a different time. So I think when we find and discover an artist or a song that we like, it's good to find a way to support them, follow them on their social media platforms, reach out to them, you know, go see them when they perform live and just, you know, don't just stream their music, buy their music, you know, it's, yeah. you know, spend a dollar, you know, especially for independent artists because that dollar goes a long way because these artists, they really don't have any money and they're really trying hard to break. But yeah, man, I think we're in a really good place with the internet because we're able to just discover music from all around the world all the time. Honestly, think about, go back 10 years ago, and like there's no way we'd even be able to discover music from all around the world like we can. Now. No. Unless you go to those countries and to those places. But now, you know, Spotify, you just go in there and you do searches. And, man, I've come across so many incredible, incredible artists and incredible songs. And I've actually reached out to a lot of these people. I've become friends with them. And, you know, I network a lot. I try to definitely have a strong network of people in the music business that I deal with on a monthly basis. I've been able to collaborate with a lot of people, do records with them, give them advice. And, you know, just kind of, you know, with some of these people, we've been able to make some really good money, not just off big radio singles, but just off licensing songs for film and TV and things like that. Right. It's just amazing to see how we've become smaller as a world because of the Internet, how K-pop has really exploded here in the States and with BTS. It reminds me of what Teen Pop was in the 90s, early 2000s, but amplified times 10. Absolutely, man. BTS is huge. I actually got called to work with them early on. I've done a lot of work in Korea and a lot of work in Japan and Taiwan. Those markets are incredible, man. And I want to say I think I've had five or six number one records out there in the last three years. I'm constantly working out there. I just got another three placements with a few new artists out there that will all be coming out this year. The Asian market is amazing. You know, it's like a lot of it is, is like 90s R&B, just kind of up which is really dope for me because it's the harmonies that we used to hear on SWV and in Vogue or, you know, Boys to Men. It's like that's where these guys are really influenced by, by those kind of vocals and those kind of harmonies. You know, the music's definitely a lot more produced. It's not as simple. There's a lot going on. But the K-pop sound is awesome, man. You know, it's, yeah, exactly, I, I enjoy it's actually it. a blessing to, yeah, to be able to do records in different markets instead of just focusing only on the U.S. market. Because I think once any songwriter and producer starts looking outside of just the U.S. and just looking at writing songs for great artists all around the world, that's when they could find the most success. Yeah, definitely that. And how did you end up working with Uncle Charlie in there writing one of his many big records? I'm blessed. Uh, thanks, man. I ended up meeting Charlie Wilson through a guy named Greg Pagani, who works in my studio building. Greg and I were really good friends. I mean, we're still in the building. We work right next door to each other. I remember I was in my room down the hall, and Charlie was in the building with Greg. And I was like, hey, man, I want you to meet Charlie. And Charlie says, what's up? You know, I met him and his wife, and I told him I've been a huge fan, and I would love to work with him someday. He said, absolutely. And so he, he was in the building the following week I think or a few days later and I was just in my room by myself down the hall and man all of a sudden I got a knock on my door and I'm like man who's knocking on my door and I opened up the door and it was Charlie Wilson and his wife I'm like man I got nervous <laughs> I started sweating because Charlie was like an icon to me I was like he was one of my favorites and he came in he goes what you got for me man I need a hit and at that time I didn't really have much man I was trying to re 
figure out my sound and just trying to kind of get up to date with everything. And I just started playing tracks, song ideas and stuff. And I knew some of these weren't going to work. But then I remembered I had this one track that I had done for about five years prior to even meeting Charlie. It was just something I had done with my old partner and I always knew it was dope. The track at the time kind of reminded me of like Next and some of the other groups that were out the late 90s and early 2000s. And so I'm like, well, I got this thing. And I played it for Charlie and he lit up. And I like that. And I started singing this hook called Never Got Enough. And me and Charlie just started bouncing ideas back and forth. And that became my first placement with Charlie Wilson. So I said, Never Got Enough. We were right there riding it with each other. We ended up riding the hook and the post hook. He laid down some melodies on the verses that he thought were really dope. And he goes, go ahead and mess with it, man. I'm going to come back next week and I'll cut it. He would take my number. So I took his number. He took my number. And I was with Frankie J. And I'm like, dude, I just worked with Charlie Wilson. And Frankie's like, yo, I want to work with Charlie. I'm like, dude, let's do it. Frankie and I were best friends. We were together every day. And we started writing Never Got Enough one night. Out. I mean, Frankie was staying with me because he lived in San Diego. But he would come to L.A. every week and he would just stay at my place. And so I remember we were driving home from the studio. And I'm like, we just started coming up with the verses and all these vibes. And then I got a call from Sam Salter, who was on the face record. I'm like, Sam, I'm working with Uncle Charlie. He goes, dude, I want to work with Charlie. Everybody wants to work with Charlie. And so Sam, he's like, let me at least do a melody, man. Let me do something. Like, okay, give us a pre-host melody. And so he gave us a pre-host melody, and me and Frankie ended up doing the rest of the lyrics on that song together. We wrote the verses and the bridge. Sam did the melody on the pre-host, and that was my first record with Charlie. And then, you know, fast forward six, seven, eight years later, something like that, I've been working with him on every single album. Early on, I was getting one song here, one song there. I think by the time the Forever Charlie album came out, I was getting three or four songs, and I actually got a single called Goodnight Kisses on them at that time, which was like a 60s doo-wop kind of record. And then I was talking to Charlie. I didn't talk to Charlie in a minute, and I knew he was working on the In It To Win It album, and he had been in with everybody. He had worked with Bieber and Pooh Bear and Bruno, Stereotypes. He was working with everybody, man. J.R. Rodham, you name it, he had been in with him. Kanye, John Legend, I'm like, man, I don't think I'm going to even get on Charlie's album because he's already been in with all the biggest cats in the game. It's like, I don't think I'm going to be able to beat these records. And man, I had called him up. He wasn't calling me back. I think he was upset with me because he had asked me to do something for him, some song. I never did it. Like, I don't know why. There was no reason, but there was this up-tempo record he wanted me to try, and I just never tried it. So he wasn't calling me back. So I remember I had a handful of records put together that I wanted to give him because I had been, like, putting together ideas for him. Because then I knew he would like a few of them. And so I couldn't get him to call me back. And so I remember I was in acupuncture, uh, doing acupuncture for the first time in my life. I was laying down. I'm like, you know, man, I'm thinking of Charlie. And in fact, he did end up calling me back. He says, sorry. He goes, he's just been really busy. And he asked me if I got something for him. I told him, yeah, I want him to come by and he goes okay cool he'll come by and then I remember I was in acupuncture for the first time and I'm like man Charlie just needs a record like that everybody can relate to not just like a love song just something that makes everybody feel good because he hasn't had a record like R. Kelly I Wish or those kind of records I'm like man if he's saying something that's just like a testimony on his life that it could be huge for him it could be incredible because nobody can sing a record like Charlie he's got one of the greatest R&B voices of all time so I was in acupuncture and I'm like, all I kept seeing on the internet was have a blessed day or I'm blessed and all this stuff. I'm like, maybe that's the sign. Maybe Charlie, you know, ask me how I'm doing. I'm blessed. Yes. Living every moment. No regrets. I'm like, this is it. I was in acupuncture with needles in my arm, all over my body. And I, I wrote that hook. And then I remember 
how strong I felt about it. I sang it for my wife in the car. I'm like, what do you think of this hook? And she's like, I love that. And I'm like, me too. I think it's a hit. I think it's a hit for Charlie. I remember I called a guy up that I was working with at the time, and I sang it for him, and he told me it was terrible, that it would never go anywhere. So I'm like, oh, whatever, this is a hit to me. So I called another guy I was working with. I'm like, yo, dude, I got this hook. I think this could be a smash for Charlie. He goes, and I sang it for him. He goes, dude, it's a hit. He goes, that's a hit, hit record. He goes, everybody can relate to that. And so him and I started driving all around and just vibing melodies and ideas. Before we even did the music, I was wanting to write an acapella at first because I wanted it to be all about the lyrics. So we had all kinds of stuff, man, like in the mix. And I spent about three weeks on that record, like just trying to get it right. And the hook came instantly and the post hook came instantly. And I must have rewritten that first verse about ten times, man, before I finally got the right lyrics. But I had pages and pages of like the lyrics I wanted to say. And I was like studying Stevie and Sam Cooke. And I was looking at R. Kelly and Jaheim. Everything that I just thought was dope. And just like really just getting ideas, you know. It's like that first line, waking up, thanking God every day. It's feeling just like Sunday. I got that from thinking of Ice Cube. Uh, just waking up in the morning, got to thank God. From today was a good day. And I'm like, oh, that's a feeling right there. You know, I just kind of started borrowing ideas and borrowing feelings from all these songs. And I had all this stuff all these lyrics and everything, and I still felt like I'm stuck. I'm like, maybe I need one other brain to come help me just organize these lyrics on this one because there's too much I want to say and I need to simplify it. So I called up my friend Carlos from the Jackie Boys. I'm like, Carlos, I got this record, man, and I think it's a home run for Charlie. But I'm blessed. I'm like, I've got all the melodies. I've got everything structured out, the hook, the post-hook, the production. It's all done. And I don't want to change anything, but I just need help taking these lyrics and arranging them in the right places. And I want to make sure it's authentic, man. I want to make sure that the cats in North Carolina are going to love it, that the cats in Memphis, cats in New York, I want churches to sing the song and everything. And I'm like, he's like, cool, I'm coming by. So he came by, and I'm like, and I want you to re-demo this song. Because at that time, it was just me singing the hook. And I'm not really a singer. I just have to sound like T-Pain. So I'm like, sing this, man. Make it super soulful. Think of Charlie. And I think that this record will be amazing. So Los did his thing. And then uh, before Charlie came by, I decided to go on YouTube. And I started, like, watching a bunch of interviews on him. And I wanted to find some kind of testimony or, or something from him talking about how he, he loves God and how he's, you know, thankful for a second chance of doing music and everything. And I took something from a YouTube interview or that I found on YouTube and I chopped it up for that intro and I pieced that thing together and I ended up I was so sad about the record I sent it to his manager his manager I sent him six records and his manager's like he called me up he goes man this album is done I have to have Charlie record these three songs I have to have him record them because we got to see what he sounds like on them and it was I'm blessed Precious Love and Good Time. Charlie came in the next day, and, you know, I actually had called Charlie. I was playing for him over the phone because he doesn't have Internet, like, or he doesn't text. He just got a flip phone. Like, him and his wife is in charge of all the calls and everything. You know, his wife has been one of the reasons why he's been clean and sober and doesn't get into any trouble or anything. You know, they monitor everything for him. He's got a great team. I played him that record over the phone. He's like, man, I love that record. And he came in, and I had just put that intro on that record. Like, nobody had heard that intro to where I sampled his interview and he heard that and him and his wife got teary-eyed and he's like, man, I've always wanted somebody to take something that I've done in one of these interviews and, and turn them into a song and he cut that record and we turned that record in. Again, remember, the album was done. They weren't even sure they were going to use that on this album. There's a song called Chills that had already went to radio and they were getting ready to start promoting it. But Peter Edge had reached out to Charlie and his manager and he told, Peter Edge was an A&R and the president of RCA at the time 
and he says to them, so I want to hear every song you guys have done, even if they're demos. I want to hear every single song to make sure we have the right record. And they, at first, they're like, okay. They sent them a zip of, of every record. Calling them back that day, he goes, you have a lot of great songs, but if you want us to really put our support and really, you know, market and push this thing to the fullest, Tom Celeste has to be the single we go with right now. So, I mean, it happened overnight, man. In fact, let me recap real quick. I had, Charlie's like, you know, if I do this song, I want to do it with somebody like T.I. And I, I'm like, I didn't even know T.I. at the time, but I had a friend named Jovan Days who knew T.I. And Jovan's in Atlanta. And I hit up Jovan, and I'm like, hey, man, do you have a contact for T.I. or anybody on his team? And he put me in touch with him right away. And I called T.I.'s team up, and I got Charlie on the phone on three-way, and man, Within two or three days, we were all recording that rap, and we turned that record in, and Peter Edge is like, this is the record, we got to go with it. And that record came out in November of 2016 and stayed on the charts for 18 months. Number one gospel, number one R&B, won a Rhythm and Soul Award, all kinds of stuff, man. That is rare to have already a lead-off song already to be pushed, but at the drop of a dime, we want to go with this as a lead, and that brings me to my next question, is that this is a great time for established acts, if you already have a name for yourself, clear it out yourself. Tell me about your work with Johnny Gill on the Game Changer album, and then overall your thoughts on the legacy and influence of New Edition as a whole, and as spinoff acts. Well, New Edition is my favorite group of all time. Biggest New Edition fan. On the Game Changer albums, I did a song with Greg Pagani called Your Body. I just kind of helped out. The record was done. Like, I just helped write the second verse of the bridge. So I never actually was in the studio when he cut the record on Johnny. It was just a placement I got just by being in the room. So I can't really take full credit for that record. Just to be honest, I was a part of it. I never really produced it or anything. I just kind of helped connect the dots. But I worked with Ralph. Back in the, in the mid-2000s, I did a remix for him called It Must Be You that I thought was really dope. And Ralph and I had become pretty good friends for a while. And then I worked with Ricky last fall. We were working on some stuff together. But New Edition is my favorite group, man. They're iconic. They're one of the greatest groups of all time. They had some Heartbreak is my favorite album of all time. Ricky is one of the coolest guys. Very down-to-earth. Very, very humble. Nothing but kind things to say about him. I wish that these guys could find a way to just get back together hit the road, give the fans what they want, maybe make another new edition album. I think in a group like that, there's a lot of egos, a lot of people who've had a lot of success. And uh, unfortunately, the success is the solo acts isn't really in existence anymore because like none of them are making new hits really on their own. But if they got together as new edition, I think that it would just be amazing for the fans if nobody else. You know, but it's just, again, you got to get rid of the egos, humble yourself, and just go out there even when you're making records, like, go out there and make the best records you can, hit the road, give the fans the best show that you can, and just keep the legacy alive, because I think it's not fair for all the fans who want to see New Edition to not be able to see New Edition. It's not fair, man. Right. I'm one of them, because I thought once the miniseries exploded and they got the Lifetime Achievement Award, that it was going to be that well-deserved, well-deserved victory, not victory lap, but that sense of, we see you, the mainstream, we see you. We all thought that. Like, that's the thing. Every one of us thought, like, the new edition album was going to come out. They were working on it, you know? Like, they were all gathering songs, but the thing just didn't happen, man. You know, BBD ended up putting out an album that did pretty well for them. You know, I think Bobby dropped a single, which really didn't do much of anything. You would have thought that Ralph would have put something out, but he didn't. And, you know, Johnny's continuing to just do Johnny. You know, he's releasing the Game Changer albums, and he's doing well with those. He's catching radio hits, but... 
the fans just really want a new edition, man. Their last big single, This One's For Me And You, was originally a Charlie Wilson record. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. Wow. That's what we do here Beyond the Album Cover. We get exclusives. Now, we have a spinoff of the new edition tree, and that's Voice Men, and you're working with one more who happens to be the sons of so what is it like working with them and how the fashion of sound for them that's current and unique to them, but at the same time not really trying to put a lot of pressure because of their dad being in one of the best selling groups of all time? Man, these kids are a breath of fresh air. They are amazing. They're humble. All amazing singers, man. I mean, the oldest one, Big Boy, sounds just like his dad. And then you have Chulo, who's the second oldest, and his voice is like so smooth. It's like butter, man. His voice is just... He's got that soul in his vocal. Then you've got Tyvis, who reminds me of a young Michael Jackson. Like when he sings Ben and got to be there in some of those songs, he sounds just like Michael. Like his voice is just beautiful, man. Like it's amazing. And then you got Rocco, who's the youngest, who is just like that dude is a beast. Like Rocco is going to be a problem when he gets older. He is just—he's got all the swag in the world for a nine-year-old kid. I've done, I think, four or five records with him so far. I'm really good friends with them and the family. And you know, we, we've tapped into some like '90s type music. So we've got something that's kind of reminiscent of Soul for Real, Candy Rain. We've got something that's reminiscent of some like '60s doo-wop with like some 808s underneath it. And then we've got like an R&B trap with still like a classic melody on top of there. And we've got one record that's kind of reminiscent of some Motown. But we're just having fun. Man. And these kids come in, they're prepared, they all know their notes, and they're just pros, like, in the booth for being little kids. It's, to me, it's like working with, like, the boys in, you know, groups like that. It's like you're just blown away when you're with them because their energy is just unbelievable, and their work ethic is incredible, man. They're more prepared as little kids than a lot of the artists that I work with who are adults. Like, these kids come in, they're so on top of their game, man. Right, and we mentioned the mixtape tour earlier with New Kids. Now, tell me about what do you think the impact New Kids has had, not only on just the pop world, but R&B as well, because originally, they started out being marketed as an R&B group, but right. once the pop world got a hold of them, that's when MTV and Tiger Beat became knocking. Man, when I first heard Please Don't Go Girl, you know, I thought they were black. I didn't know that they were a white group, you know, and it was like the Jacksons, it's like New Edition, and who else was out during that time? 4 by 4 Ready for the world. They were like, Please Don't Go Girl was like unbelievable, man. That record was everything. And I'll Be Loving You Forever. That was like the stylistics. They were like super reminiscent of your favorite R&B groups, but they were these white kids from Boston who just had this bad boy image to them, man. It was really the first time, if you really think about it, that you saw like a bad boy image for a group because if you look back to album covers prior to that time, like the Jets and New Edition and things, they're all smiling. You know what I mean? Everybody's smiling and happy. And you see Hanging Tough, and these kids are on the train looking hard. And it was like, it, to me, it was the start of like a bad boy kind of for pop groups, man. It was groundbreaking. I think the mixtape tour was a very smart move because it reinvented the career of Tiffany and Debbie Gibson, who had not performed in arenas probably for 20 or 25 years. Who knows if they've been recording or singing or what they've been doing. And you put Naughty by Nature and Son of Pepper out there, it's like, it's just it's a no-brainer. And the way they did it was genius because it wasn't like an opening act. They just kind of all came in and out like a mixtape would. And, man, they just have fun.
fun. It was a great tour. I took my wife to the show at the Hollywood Bowl in L.A. Man, we had a great time, man. We really went down memory lane while we were there at that show. Yeah, the merchandising that they were pulling, the money they were making was nuts. Because when I interviewed Danny and Maurice, Danny told me that they originally did a version of the video for Please Don't Go Girl that was only for BET and that Maurice Star paid out of pocket for it because they were still being marketed as an R&B group. But a pop station out of Florida started playing Please Don't Go Girl. And then that was when Columbia got wind from pop stations that you got to hit. And that's when they shot the better black and white version at Coney Island. Right, I remember because there was two different videos for that one, if we all remember. Yeah, the one where they were in the gym, they were shooting basketball. That was the one that just went to BET. Gotcha. The, I wonder if that one's still out on YouTube or if they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original Please Don't Go Girl video is still on YouTube. And this also brings to mind, to me, another group that I felt was underrated, but they came out way too early before the Latin boom here in the States. Barrio Boys. Barrio Boys, they were the truth, man. I mean, they're... We used to play Barrio Boys all the time in the 90s. They had a song. I think they had a record called I Get Lifted. Uh, yeah, they did with Fat Joe. With Fat Joe. You know, it's funny, man, because, you know, Frankie J told me that's how he came up with Sugar Sugar. He was listening to Barrio Boys, I Get Lifted all the time, and that's how he came up with Got Me Lifted, Gifted, Higher Than a Ceiling. So, um, wow. Yeah, so he said, I mean, Barrio Boys were a huge influence on him. And I, I was actually friends with one of the guys years ago. We used to talk all the time, Han Solo. Yeah, Han's vocally a beast, that Howie Roll album. I felt if it would have came out around 98, 99, they would have had more success here in America. Right. They were kind of bubbling because they right. did a lot of Spanish language albums prior to the Howie right. Roll album. And they did a cut with Selena before she passed. That's correct. Who I felt had she not passed, she would have been a Mega star. Absolutely, man. She was a star before she passed. So it's like, you know, again, that's an other sad situation of somebody internally screwing up the whole situation for everybody. And it's, it's not just Selena. You know, unfortunately with Selena, you know, she lost her life, which is so sad. But think about all the groups who have, that we've loved, who have bad management or like group members who are just poison for the group. You know what I mean? You just, there's so many things internally that the fans never even know about. And, you know, the fans just really want great songs and they want new groups and new artists to be a fan of and to follow. And it's hard, man. I mean, we're in a business. The music business will spit you out just as fast as they take you in, man. Right. And this is where I feel old because I used to teach before I had my current day job. I was substituting for a class. And this young girl sitting in the front row, she had a T-shirt, and it was a picture from NSYNC's self-titled debut album, Hand of State. And I'm just like, whoa, do you know who Justin Timberlake is? It was like, uh, he's so old as I know. He was in that group in that shirt that you were wearing. So it was amazing for me to see how Bashy Boys and NSYNC are considered retro now. Absolutely, man. I mean, think about it. That's 20 to 25 years ago. Yeah, I was 13 years old at yeah. the time. And then also in high school, I can remember the first time I heard Kanye. It was off of a mixtape called Champion. And I was just intrigued because he sampled Queen. And I was right. thinking, man, who would sample Queen? Now, by you living in Chicago during that time, did you kind of have an inkling of Kanye and kind of knowing that he was going to be something once he got out? Absolutely, man. I, there was a buzz on Kanye during that time. And I remember briefly meeting Kanye at one of the studios. He was in a rap group with somebody, but I was in one room and he was in the other room. And he was just a talented dude, man, like super talented. Chicago had a lot of talent, man. I feel like when I worked with public announcements, that's really how I learned to write because I was such a huge fan of those guys. You know, they had worked with R. Kelly and they had a couple albums out and they had some 
decent singles, and I was working with a guy named Ace and with a guy named Felony. I actually did Ace's first album. I produced that with my old partner, and Ace and I became really good friends during that time. And you know, we were just all kind of learning. It was the first time Ace was branching out on his own, trying to do some solo stuff because Public Announcement was on hiatus. And it was my partner and I learning how to produce an album for someone, and you know, and learning how to be good co-writers and how to you know just develop a good relationship with the artist and pick their brain and try to give them the best project possible, man. You know, that album and that project would have, um, I feel if we had the right promo for that project, it would have really done well for him, man. We had a lot of people really interested, but he had bad management at the time. And again, when you have bad management, it's just it's poison for an entire project. And it, at that time, it ruined our relationship with Ace. It ruined our relationship with a lot of people. And, you know, you kind of live and you learn from all these situations. But I remember our first trip out to L.A. with Ace. It was back in 2002. There's four of us all in a hotel room. Two guys in each bed. We were broke. We had no money at that time, man. We were all around the city looking for a situation. And I remember we snuck into the BMG building, or one of them, and Flight Time was in there. And I had become friends with Desmarie Guyton, who was doing A&R for Jimmy and Terry. And I told her I was out here, and I wanted to say hi, and I wanted to drop her off a CD. And so I dropped her off a CD, and it was an Ace demo CD. And we had two songs on there, two or three songs. And she goes, hey, I love these songs. She goes, can I play them for Jimmy and Terry because I want to record them on this new artist we have signed called LaMarvin. While I was talking to her, I'm like, well, we really don't want to give the songs away to anybody else. We're trying to get Ace a deal. She goes, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, we're sure. And she goes, okay. Well, if you change your mind, let me know because they're a really great song. And so I called her the next day and I told her after I talked to Ace and talked to the other people, I'm like, hey, we have an opportunity to meet Jimmy and Terry and get these songs recorded. And I called her the next day. I'm like, hey, Des, it's a meal calling again. And she goes, hey, what's up? I go, well, if you want to record those songs, you can. It's cool with all of us. And she said, well, you have to bring me another CD because I already threw that one away. <laughs> she said she doesn't keep anything that's not available. And I learned from that day, you make sure that everything stays available and you never tell anybody something too quick, man, because that could have been a big chance for us to work with Jimmy and Terry as young producers that we kind of <laughs> missed out on, man. Right. Your best ability is availability. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And what are your thoughts on the show Songland and how it reveals the songwriting process? I don't even watch the show, to be honest. I've got friends on the show, but I don't even watch the show. I stopped watching those shows. I stopped watching Idol and X Factor, everything. I just kind of stay away from it. No particular reason. Uh, that's quite interesting, but I know for me, being on the outside looking in, it kind of gives that process of what it's like to pitch a record, but I feel like it kind of only shows it for a certain genre, right. because is there a difference in writing a record, let's say, for Top 40 demo than it is for Urban demo and a Country demo? You're just writing great songs, you know? Great song is a great song, and it just depends on who puts their voice on it. If you've got a great pop record, for example, like say something, you took something like John legend all of me well that could have been a country record it could have been a boys to men record it could have been uh, an usher record you know it just depends a great song is a great song and i think when you're just trying to write great songs then you have just so much more potential to get them placed in different places you know what i mean i have a friend who's on Songland. and she really enjoys it she loves the process her name is lauren dyson i think she's going back on it for the second or third time but she's really enjoying the process i've had a few other friends be on the show as well i just to be honest I just don't watch it. I'm so busy in the studio writing and producing, and I've got so many projects. And when I'm home, I've got kids. I've got a five-year-old and a 16-month-old, and we're watching cartoons, so I'm not really able to watch PJ Masks is in heavy rotation. PJ Masks, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, you name it. That's, that's what's going on in the background. Hot diggity dog. Yeah, yeah exactly, man. 
and that's, that's pretty much my life right now. But I haven't watched those shows in a while, man. Like, I really haven't. Yeah, there's no reason. I just haven't. I've been just busy right. being a dad and working. Right, and you mentioned how with the COVID, it changed the way that people are producing records. Tell me about the Now United record and the recorded process of everybody being long distance. Yes, I've been working with Now United since last fall. first record I did with them was called Na Na Na, and that did really well. It streamed really well, um, and I think it's got it's their most played or most listened to song online. So that one's really doing well for us, man. Now United is a group that has... Currently, they have 15 members from 15 different countries. They're always expanding. They're going to continue adding more members. As some of the members get older, they're going to, you know, maybe replace them with younger members. It's going to be similar to Menudo. But it's kind of like K-pop on crack, to be honest. And I've become really good friends with the A&R Ian. And uh, the group is Simon Fuller's group. Simon Fuller did, you know, everything from going back to the Spice Girls to American Idol. And February, Ian and I were talking. And COVID was really starting to be a major thing in the world. And he said, you know, he was a little concerned because they want to keep doing records on the group and they're not sure how they're going to do records, especially if they can't fly or travel or all get together in the studio. And he said eventually they're going to end up running out of music and they have to find a way to continue putting out records. And so I had an idea to record them on their iPhone, like using their voice notes. And what I did, I came up with an idea. I had a couple songs that Ian wanted to cut on them, but he wasn't sure how we would be able to get into the studio and do it. And I told him, well, give me a chance to record them over the phone. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, let me me loop the sections for example let me loop verse one and let me loop that verse for three minutes or four minutes let me send it to one of the singers and let me have them play it on their laptop and listen to it on their headphones so not actually through their laptop speakers so play it on your computer listen through your headphones get your iphone turn on your voice notes and start recording takes of the verse and i'll help produce your vocal over the phone i'm not going to be able to hear the music but i'm going to be able to listen to your vibe and your feel and your accent and your pronunciation and everything and i'm going to try to capture the best performance that i can listening to you sing it acapella and so um, we did it and i'm like you know with the first singer we were trying different areas in the room we, you know we tried closets moving mattresses around and have them sing under mattresses i didn't necessarily want them to hold the phone because it could sound like the phone is shaking and it get staticky so I would have them set the phone on a bookshelf or like make a pile of books and like have stack a pile of books uh, as high up as they could and maybe sit on a bed and just kind of like sing right into the microphone on the phone and you know with some of the singers I had them put socks over the phone or tights or whatever you can find to help absorb like or create some kind of pop filter or anything to help make the sound a little better and man I was able to pull it off I just got all those voice notes and I just manually lined them up I used Logic for my recording platform and I would take all those voice notes each member would just text me the vocal like to my phone and I'd actually be texted to my computer because I'd just get them from my iMessage and they would be mp4s they wouldn't even be waves but I would drag those into Logic and I would start creating you know, EQs and compression and the right, you know, effects for their vocal, for each vocal to have it all sound consistent. And that's how I did by my side, man. And we, we did two or three other records just like that shortly afterwards. And now I think we're on the seventh or eighth song together during the quarantine. And all of the members have USB mics or some kind of mic, uh, Logic and GarageBand. So we're not using iPhones anymore. I mean, it's amazing what we were be able to pull off with the iPhone. Amazing. You can't even tell that it was cut on a phone. Yeah, we're just constantly going, man. We're recording. I've become one of the main producers for the project. We've been averaging about three songs a month right now. It's been an awesome ride. I love working with the kids. They're so talented. They're all in different countries. They're all humble. They're all, you know, excited for every opportunity. They're thankful for every song. 
They work hard, man. They're shooting virtual videos and putting those things together. They're working hard, man. And it's like anytime you're working with any artist, it doesn't matter what genre it is, and they're and they have good attitudes. It makes you actually want to do even a better job on the project because you're excited to work with people who are excited for the chance of doing something great. Yeah, definitely dope. And any new projects you got coming out currently or is in the works? Yeah, man. I'm working with a lot of new artists because that's kind of where I'm focusing my uh, energy. There's this girl named Haven who I've been working with who I think is exciting. She reminds me of like a new school Gwen Stefani. We just did a record called Be With You and Selena Gomez reposted the record for us. Selena loved it. So I've done 14 records with this girl. I've been working with this girl named Baby God on Universal Republic and I've got a few records coming out with her. I've got the new Charlie Wilson record that just came out yesterday called One I Got. We sampled the four tops on and that record's the reaction on that one so far is amazing and I've got about seven or eight other records that I've been cutting with Charlie during the quarantine. We've actually been going in once a week just on Fridays. We're in masks. We're all covered up. Just me, him and his wife and we're just working, man. We're just putting together these records. I've been writing them all with one of my best friends, Tyler Conti. Him and I have been writing all the records over FaceTime. Tweaking them out with Charlie. You know, Charlie's definitely got his input on stuff. I'm actually going to write some stuff for Charlie with Steve Russell from Troop and Sam Waters from Color Me Bad and Joe Little from the Root Boys. I actually am excited to work with cats that I grew up like really loving and being influenced by so it's like kind of my way of kind of giving back to those cats bringing them on board on the new Charlie record I'm doing a lot of K-pop stuff there's a girl named Selena Sharma who's on Virgin Records in the UK so I've got a single coming out with her here in the next couple months just a lot of stuff man I'm just thankful that I'm actually working I've been busier during COVID than I ever have been in my life and I've placed 18 records right now in three months the most I've ever placed and I'm just working from home I'm humbled by it all you know I'm close to my family Working from home isn't always the easiest, but I'm making it happen. I'm thankful that, you know, people want my music and that I'm getting calls from new artists, from classic artists, from R&B, pop artists, K-pop artists. So I'm just getting calls from all kinds of people who just want to work with me, which is just amazing, man. And, and I'm reaching out to a lot of people that I think are really dope, that I just want to work with and be a part of their project as well. So I don't take any of this stuff for granted. I'm just really thankful for every opportunity. Yeah, definitely that. Any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude this interview and also give out your social media? Social media is just Emil Gantos on Instagram and on Facebook. I really don't use Twitter too much. No, I just want to really thank you, man, for having me. I know you and I have talked and been friends for years. For the musical nerds, we're on all these New Jack Swing forums and everything, man. But cats like us just really love the history, you know, and, like, all the stories that go with all these records that created so many memories for us throughout our life, man. But it's been a pleasure being on the show, man. I appreciate you wholeheartedly, ladies and gentlemen. There you have it. Beyond the album cover with producer... Songwriter, music extraordinaire, Emil Gantos. Emil, thank you for doing this interview with me. Thank you, bro. Thank you.